It's Andra Zaharia. I'm Dave Smythe. And this is the Cyber Empathy Podcast. By taking an empathetic approach to technology, we can create space for positive change and healthy relationships to grow. We share stories of kindness, curiosity, and connection that show how we can all shape online privacy and security. Thanks for being here. Security should be a byproduct of our empathy. It should be a byproduct of our ability to understand and help people with their problems. If we know what keeps people awake at night, we can support them. And that starts by talking with people, by understanding the problems they have in the workplace and and indeed outside the workplace as well. Throwing more information at people and throwing more technology at the problem won't necessarily fix one of the biggest challenges in cybersecurity today, which is closing the gap between information and acting on it. We keep telling people all of these things that they have to do, but it doesn't make it any easier to actually do them, to see progress, especially when they end up getting the blame for not doing enough or not being enough, not being careful enough, clicking those links that they shouldn't, and so on and so forth. So today I'm talking about this particular issue from a number of angles, and we also dive into a piece of research that's particularly helpful for everyone in the cybersecurity industry with Joe Giddens, a truth-telling, no-bars-hold guest that really believes in standing up for people and championing them in cybersecurity and helping them feel empowered and helping them have positive experiences with cybersecurity. We talked a lot about self-fulfilling prophecies and desensitization, how that happens for people who work in the industry, and how to try to reconnect and, and close that gap between people who know a lot more about these things than everyone else does, everyone else who uses technology for things that are not necessarily related to security, but to their own regular lives. It's important to make Cybersecurity is something that's tangible, something that's positive, something that people feel they have a natural inclination towards. There's so much that we can do with what we already know. And Joe really does a great job at highlighting this. I'm excited to share this conversation with you and to help you get to know another great person behind you know, the great work that happens in cybersecurity. I'm inspired by John's story, by his approach, by his honest and vulnerable way of showing up in this community. And I hope we get to connect to many, many more people like him, because I know that that's the start of real change in this industry and beyond it. Thanks for listening. Joe, lovely to finally talk to you, to finally get to explore a bit of your experience with empathy in mind and many, let's say, stories and experiences to explore. Likewise, Andra, it's great to meet you at last. We've been going back and forth for a number of years, I think, and uh, I think we hold very similar viewpoints that both of us shout from the rooftops, and I'm excited to talk about them. 
Oh, yes. And speaking about that, something that I picked up and something that we have in common is that we both come from, let's say, non-technical backgrounds. And one of the things that I first wanted to kind of explore is your inception story, (laughs) given that you have a bachelor's degree in music and arts management, but you ended up spending around almost 10 years in investigating and preventing cybercrime as part with the Metropolitan Police. And I was wondering, how did that happen exactly? What did that journey look like? Like most 19 or 20-year-olds, when I went to university, I, I had no idea what I wanted to do. <laughs> music was an interest, but it was it was nothing more than that. So I found a degree which said music in the title, and I went to do that. And it was more driven out of the fact that I think in the UK at the time, it was the last year where student fees were remaining quite low. So if I'd left it a year, it would have been more expensive for me. So I just picked a course and I I went and did it. And then like anyone who does music, I decided I wanted to join the police force about halfway, halfway through that course. And so I started sort of making moves towards that as I was studying. What happened, I think, is just I I didn't really see a path in in music. Like I say, it was an interest rather than a passion or actually anything I was good at. So I I picked the police and after leaving university, I signed up to the Metropolitan Police in the UK. Spent two years in uniform, so working on the streets of Tottenham, which is a lovely place, despite what anyone says. And after a little while of doing that, I, I... specialized in detective work. I moved into detective work, initially working in a domestic violence unit, helping victims of domestic violence and abuse. And then after that, I moved into serious crime. At the time, serious crime was anything underneath a murder. So all the lovely things like rapes, high-risk missing people, serious assaults. It was tough work. It took its toll, but it was meaningful and I enjoyed it. It does sound like you you had to deal with some very difficult and very emotionally intense situations while you were doing this. So that sounds honestly quite impactful, especially for someone kind of in, let's say, the first years of their career. That's something difficult to experience as a, well, a, a maturing adult. It was. And, and I use the word it was and not it is, because at the time you don't really recognize what's happening. The change is slow and you you build up this armor, which manifests in the forms of like dark humor and probably drinking a little bit too much and spending time around your colleagues who who become your family. And it didn't leave a good impression on me. When I left the police, I sort of, you come out and you realize the world isn't as bad, but you see the bad side of it on a daily basis. And there was a lot of like working through that, that trauma. Like I say, the shield that had built up, you had to take it down, which was a process. And um, I guess on a tangent here, for, for anyone who, who's working in law enforcement and is regularly exposed to the bad side of life, just talk to people. Talk to people about it. Don't cover it up. Don't drink it away. Don't laugh it away. It's not normal. And talking really helps. And sort of understanding um, yourself and understanding your colleagues and, and other people is a really good thing to do. I really appreciate you sharing that, especially because I feel that it is a more intense formula or something that people in cybersecurity experience as well. People who have to deal with cyber incidents and they are always kind of the people who have to push others to do the right thing and even if if they don't want to. But this is 
something that's a thousand times more intense and more visceral than perhaps working in cybersecurity is. So you've already, you, you already went into this with a lot of emotional practice of what it means to deal with emotionally charged situations, I guess. Yeah, it's, it's very easy to sleepwalk into a negative attitude. And you don't realize it because it becomes your attitude. It is who you are. And it happens very gradually, and it happens as a result of just desensitization to bad things. And I think you draw a great comparison there. We, as, as security professionals, we're probably desensitized to bad things which are happening. We're dealing with breaches and when things go wrong and when our colleagues aren't doing the things that they need to, but not, not because they don't want to. It's generally because they're in the wrong situation, the wrong environment, or they've got other priorities which are just as important as what we deal with. That's true. And plus, I think that there is also, there are so many layers of abstraction that separate people from cybercrime, which is why it's so difficult to see the potential consequences of your actions or lack thereof. It's so difficult to connect the cause to its effect. And I think that that's a real challenge that's going to still persist for quite some time because biologically, we're just not built for that yet. I agree. Technology moves quicker than anything, and it sure as hell moves quicker than how we adapt to our environments. I think the first computer was invented maybe 80, 90 years ago. And prior to that, there's millions of years of evolution to get us to where we are. And we're expecting people to thrive in these environments, which have sprung up over the last 100 years. That's just unreasonable. As security professionals, obviously, we're immersed in it more, so it's more familiar to us. But on the theme of empathy, we should just realize this doesn't come naturally to people. It doesn't come naturally to humans, and it doesn't come easy to people who don't do this day to day. That is so, so true. This effort to adapt, I think, is such an important thing to keep in our awareness. And it brings me back to how did you adapt crossing into working in cybersecurity and taking all of that experience that you've gathered to apply in this extremely kind of abstract and seemingly devoid of feelings field? <laughs> sure. So after the sort of stint in serious crime, I started specializing in cybersecurity investigations or cybercrime investigations. I did this for four or five years. And during that time, I I had the opportunity to work with and speak with and interact with many different types of victims of cybercrime. And it was an experience. I don't know if it was a good experience or a bad experience, but I'm grateful for having had that experience because it taught me a lot about people and how they deal with things and, and how they sort of go about their their day-to-day -day lives. I came across this analogy, which I read in a book called The Black Swan, by Nassim Taleb. He makes this analogy of a turkey. And the turkey lives on a farm with the farmer. And every day, the farmer feeds the turkey. And every day the farmer feeds the turkey, the turkey starts to like form a stronger view or opinion of the farmer. Because the farmer is feeding me, the farmer must be my friend. And every time the turkey is fed, this, this view just grows stronger and stronger and stronger until Christmas. And at that point, the farmer and the turkey, they're no longer friends because the turkey ends up dead on a dinner plate. It's a bit of a morbid metaphor, but I think it works really well for cybercrime and, and what I was doing at the time. This mentality of, it will never happen to me. It will never happen to me. It will never happen to me. 
And every day that goes past where it doesn't happen to you, you form this sort of stronger point of view, this stronger opinion of, well, it's not happened to me yet, so it's less likely to, be, to happen to me. And the whole time we're sleepwalking into risk. Then it happens. Then, then the breach occurs. Then the theft occurs or, or the, the incident which rocks people's worlds. And it's not through lack of carelessness because they're, they're sort of too focused on other things. This is just how we're built as people. This is, this is how we think. This is a, like deep-rooted survival mechanisms, mechanisms which, which help us be who we are and sort of do what we do. So it's important to understand that. And again, layering that on to other areas of work and other areas of what people do, their motivation is not security. Their motivation is doing a good job. It's pleasing clients. It's meeting deadlines. It's hitting targets. That's the main goal that drives other areas of the workforce. We can forget that as security professionals. And it's, it's where security becomes a friction. And in some cases, too much of a friction that people have to find workarounds to it. This was the sort of the things that I brought with me into security work and, and CyberSafe and, and what I'm doing now. That's a very powerful metaphor. And it really highlights, let's say, the number of biases that we have to deal with and the number of things that we would benefit working on, which seem like this this list of biases feels endless a little bit. And I think that inherently, actually, cybersecurity does offer some mental models and some frameworks and concepts which can really help improve our self-awareness, not just around, let's say, digital security and privacy issues, but generally speaking, it just helps make your mind clearer that happens if you're interested. If you have, let's say, a natural affinity to these kind of things. For example, me as a an, an anxious person who has dealt with anxiety her entire life, I was. I think that part of the appeal of cybersecurity for me was that it gave me a way to create some predictability and manage risk better in my life, and that's helped me a lot. So. I love that you're highlighting this, these mental models and these biases and things that carry over to multiple areas of our lives and are not just specific to cybersecurity. And I was wondering if we think of patterns and biases that we all share, if victims that you dealt with, victims of cybercrime, had anything in common in their, let's say, first reactions to realizing that the farmer has turned against them. <laughs> it was shock. It was always shock. I heard the phrase, we just thought it would never happen to us so many times in my career. I think that summarizes it as best as I can. We just, we never thought it would happen to us. This belief, I think, is something that often occurs. Well, I think it happens to everyone, honestly speaking, simply because, again, the consequences and the inner workings of cybercrime are so hidden from view. They're not physical. They're not palpable in any way that until it's honestly, it's too late until it's too late. Although I hate using that cliche, but it is, it is true nonetheless. Yeah. I, I guess like that's, that's the point I was making about desensitization as security professionals. We see this, we see this day in, day out. And I came across this phrase like familiarization is the best form of anesthetic. Familiarization is the best form of anesthetic. And we, we just really need to understand that not everyone sees things from our point of view. Not everyone is exposed to the sort of number of incidents and logs and 
I don't know, phishing emails and bad behavior that we see day in, day out. And empathy here is sort of, again, like I was saying before, understanding things from other people's point of view. I, I think true empathy is like living things from other people's point of view, but that's a little more difficult. It is, it is. There are several layers. There's cognitive empathy and emotional empathy, and you can experience whatever form we start experiences, I think is still very valuable, especially because the work that you're doing now in a space that's very challenging in the sense of trying to codify and analyze human behavior around cybersecurity and how that changes and try to make this measurable so we can so you can measure progress in terms of how are people actually acquiring all of this information, how they're making use of it, and how it feeds into their behavior at the end of the day, which, again, very difficult because human behavior is so diverse and, and so unexpected at times, <laughs> just like in the metaphor. So I, I wanted to kind of ask a little bit about what personally kind of drew you to this area, this particular area of cybersecurity, which has to do obviously a lot more with human behavior than it has to do with technology, technology being an enabler at the end of the day? It was more through chance than anything else. It was a series of fortunate events which led me to CybeSafe and Oz, the CEO of CybeSafe. We started off as a very small outfit, just five or six of us in a small room. We had a vision to to build a piece of software that helped people be more secure and safe online and then when they use technology. And uh, I guess uh, our understanding grew as the, as the company grew to where we are now. We were a behavioral risk platform and we influence and measure people's security behaviors. And there's so much to unpick there, but really the sort of the transformation that we've gone through over the last five years and, and the work that we're doing has been around the fact that you can know things, people can have knowledge, they can have understanding, but that doesn't translate to behavior. It just doesn't. I know drinking is bad for me and I drink too much. I know I shouldn't smoke, but sometimes I do. I know I should exercise and I probably don't exercise enough. Like I know these things, I am aware of them, I have this knowledge. But to take that to behavior, you need more. You need a lot more than just what we're giving people at the moment. And what is that specifically? What fills that gap, let's say? What brings information and knowledge into actual practice? It's a series of things that are built around like situational, physical, mental, and social context as to, as to what people are doing. I'll give some examples. I know I should exercise more. There are devices you can wear on your wrist, like an Apple Watch or a Fitbit, that tell you when you've been sitting down too long. So I, I'm taking that knowledge and I'm taking a prompt, a nudge in the right direction from a wearable. And it's telling me, hey, you've been sat for too long. It's time to get up and move. An example of like nudging someone at the right time in the right way with the right information, with the sort of knowledge that they have already. I, I should do more exercise. I have that knowledge. I just need a, a choice, timely nudge to turn that into behavior. Just on this theme, because there's, there's a lot to unpick here. Some of these wearables also give you goals that you can set for yourself. I want to do this many thousand steps a day. That's a tangible thing to aim at. And it's a tangible thing to achieve. And when you do it each day, you get a little 
firework go off on on the watch or or the thing that you're wearing it says well done and you feel good about it it's a dopamine hit so there's an example of goal setting and then you can you can compare how you're doing to your friends and your family and you can compete with them and there's a social aspect to that so just on this like one theme of moving and exercising there's a lot of understanding that goes into um, helping people do that the challenge we have with with helping people be more secure i think is is probably even greater than helping people be healthy or healthier there are se- over 70 known security behaviors and for each one we require sort of research and understanding and data and and knowing what works and what doesn't work and and how that changes from people to people because everyone's different the challenge is not insignificant but it's a it's a a fun one and yeah that, that's that's what we're doing that's that's what our work revolves around and it's a meaningful one as well I, I really see how this type of research how this type of work has such long-term benefits as well security is now fundamental to global stability to societal stability it contributes to so many things and we're so highly dependent on it. But again, people in the industry see this more than people outside of it simply because they're just more involved in the kind of nitty gritty of it. And I loved how you emphasize helping people make use of their their existing information. For such a long time, well, generally the main approach in cybersecurity education has been to tell people that they're not safe enough, they're not doing enough, they're clicking on the wrong things, they're acting in a way that's not compliant or unsafe. And generally we've just been making people feel bad about themselves, which never led anyone to actually change their behavior or do so sustainably. And instead of seeing cybersecurity as an ally, as a benefit, as a source of information, knowledge, and experience that can improve their lives overall, they've always seen it as a chore, as something to do, as friction, as, oh, here's this other thing that I have to take care of. So thank you for highlighting how this could change through by making things more tangible, like you said, by making them feel more relatable and by helping them, by putting them in a positive context that people can actually enjoy because we really need a lot more of that in our lives, generally speaking. Yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head there. Like security should be a byproduct of our empathy. It should be a byproduct of our ability to understand and help people with their problems. If we know what keeps people awake at night, we can support them. And that starts by by talking with people, by understanding the problems they have in the workplace and, and indeed outside the workplace as well. And then doing what we can to support them to, to solve those problems. If we do that, security should just come naturally because we're building the environment in a way that facilitates behavior in a secure way. Exactly. Plus, that's a fundamental need that we have. Everyone can relate to the need to be safe, to feel safe, to feel that you are in an environment that supports you and trusts you, where you trust other people enough to be vulnerable, to go to them with your issues, with your questions, without feeling inadequate or stupid or less of a professional because you don't know how to do X or Y or Z. And you've uncovered that 
a, a great many things about this particular topic in the report that you recently launched. I love its name. Oh, behave. I read that in a voice the first time that I saw it. I read that in my head like, ah, oh, that's such a great name. That's exactly what kind of some security people are trying to tell others. Would you just behave already? I don't, I've, I'm sick of the trying to, to tell you to behave. Just do it. What kind of reactions have you seen to the report? And then we'll just dive into just a few highlights because I think that there's a lot of great information there, which we couldn't possibly cover in a single conversation, but we can talk about some highlights. It's interesting that you've read the title in that way, like it's finger wagging. It's like telling someone off, oh, behave. When we put this together, it was a little bit more tongue in cheek based on the Austin Powers catchphrase, like, oh, behave. So the reaction to the report, and, and I should say at this point, it's not just a CyberSafe report. It's put together in collaboration with the National Cybersecurity Alliance and Get Safe, uh, Get CyberSafe from the States and Canada, respectively. The goal of the report is to just shed some light on not what people are doing. We know what people are doing. We've got that data like by the bucket load, but why people are doing it. Why are they acting in such ways when, when they interact with technology? And the, I guess the, the themes to draw out are people want to be safe. They want to be secure. But a lot of the time, security is just too overwhelming. A good example is multi-factor authentication. Multi-factor authentication, what a word. That's a, a mouthful. I guess what we mean when we say it is just like, it's a really, really good password. It's, it's a really good way to protect your accounts. But for some reason, it's got this, this long, complicated word that doesn't really mean that much to people if, if, unless you unpick each part of it. So one of the questions is around multi-factor authentication. And uh, a lot of the answers is, I, I don't know what you're talking about. What, what is this? Of course, it's like one of the most fundamental things that people should be doing in security is protecting their accounts and their online information with MFA. But we've got a framing problem here. We've got a problem that we're, we're telling people to use something, but we're doing so in such a way that they don't even know what we're talking about. So there's this information that we can take from that, that if we just spoke to people, if we communicated using their language, using words they are familiar with, they might be more likely to adopt this. And again, it's not through lack of trying or, or because they don't want to, it's simply because they don't understand. That is so absolutely true. I've seen this behavior. I, I try to always kind of eat my own dog food and always be, well, first of all, observe myself while I have, why I interact with tech products that require certain security layers and, and see when I feel frustrated and kind of make a mental note of that and realize that probably millions of other people have the same experience as me. I look at my mom, I look at my dad, I look at friends who I've been obviously nagging about cybersecurity for a long time, and they're already kind of responsible about it. But I look at people who are outside of tech, who use tech, but they're not inherently interested in technology and spend that much time with it kind of intentionally. And I look at their behavior and I see all of these things. My mom works in insurance, so she's she has to follow all of these rules and she knows why, but still sometimes systems fail her. And I see, just as you mentioned, that her final, let's say, duty is to the customer. And when the customers need her and she can't serve them, that takes a heavy emotional toll. It adds a lot of stress to her life. 
And these are moments that keep repeating billions of times across people's lives across the world. And that's something that I feel that we may sometimes lose sight of. And having, again, this seeing things reflected in a report such as this, I think is so important to read, no matter what role you have in the cybersecurity industry or in technology in general. One of the fundamental changes which has happened, I think, in our lifetime, because when I was growing up, you could still have a job which didn't require you using technology. One of the fundamental things that has happened in our lifetime is this change. It's not an option anymore to use technology or not. We have to use technology. If we want to live and work in the modern world, you can't get away from that. Everything we do is connected in some way to technology. Our success as people, our safety, our well-being. Is it a fundamental need? I don't know if, if I'd go that far, but it's undeniable that anyone in the modern workplace has to use technology to be successful. And our approach to, to sort of help people stay safe in that environment is still, here's some training, here's some information. It's, it's not so much building the environment to be safe, but it's expecting people to be safe in an environment they're unfamiliar with. And, and that's reflected in the report as well. Lots of people have access to training, and that doesn't necessarily translate into security behavior. And not even everyone has access to training. So we're, we're failing on two counts. We're not even giving people information in the right way or, or in a way that they can use it. And the information we do give them doesn't, doesn't help them. And we're still, at the end of the day, they're the ones who get blamed. They're in a situation, we're putting people in a, in a situation where they just can't win. They are damned if they do, they are damned if they don't, and no matter how much they try. And to see this in context, to see, just to sit with this realization and with the discomfort that it produces, I think that that's such an important thing to feel, honestly. We need to be talking about emotions a lot more in the decision-making process and how it in, they inspire and trigger actions a lot more than we do in cybersecurity. It is inherently in an industry that wants to codify everything, that wants to uh, pick things up and scale them and turn them into products and turn them into software, but throwing more technology at the problem isn't helping, just like we can see. I wanted to talk particularly about one of the aspects mentioned in the report, one of the insights. It's called learned helplessness. I think that that's something that really catches your eye as you go through the insights. And I wanted to ask what stereotype sits behind that and how we could carve a, a better path forward or a solution that you see to this particular issue. Yeah. So learned helplessness. There is a phrase which has tainted our industry for way too long, like a bad smell that won't go away. And we all know what the phrase is. People are the weakest link. People are the <laughs> weakest link. And my blood boils when I hear it, because if you tell someone they're crap at something, they'll be crap at something. I don't know how many times this, this is sort of repeated and, and churned out in different ways and in different words. But you touched on it earlier. It's, it's the whole fear, uncertainty, and doubt as the basis for our messaging. And if, if, we're, if we're basing our messaging around fear, uncertainty, and doubt, then people are scared. They're scared to do the wrong thing. They're scared to act in the wrong way. 
And as far as I know, there are no sort of academic or scientific studies which show scaring people or shaming people or, or making people fearful of things or like telling people off is a good way to motivate positive behaviors. It's a good way to alienate people. <laughs> or even turn it into a self-fulfilling prophecy at the end of the day. And I think that this particular phrase, people choose to use it because it serves their own ego, because it makes them feel better about themselves because they know more and they feel like they're in a position of power over others. But again, that small, let's say, show of super superiority will lead to nothing good. Yeah, it's it's egocentric and it's a good way to cover up the fact you're doing a bad job, as far as I see it. There are so many things that has to happen before a phishing email lands in someone's inbox. Your network has to be configured wrong. Your email filters have to fail. You have to make a conscious decision not to buy enough software and configure it in the right way to let that email get into an inbox. To blame the person at the end of the day is just a real cheap way out. And and like I say, I think it's it's just it's bad people covering up the fact that they're doing a bad job. This is, I think, what we see in this is the learned helplessness. We we blame the people that we're protecting or supposed to protect, and then we're surprised when they don't engage with us or come to us or report things to us. I don't know the sort of the numbers, but I would be interested to see. How many people in the security team regularly get invited to the pub versus everyone else in the company? I think they're probably quite lonely. That is true. That is true. And a previous guest on the podcast actually talked about the value of approachability and how she discovered through various experiences that no one in the security team where she worked in talked to people in other teams in the company, which was a huge surprise to her. But they kept receiving a lot of problems that were easily solved through just one conversation with that person who had no idea that they're doing something wrong, obviously. And this kind of truth-telling that you're doing now, this is exactly why I wanted to talk to you for the podcast. And I love that people are taking a real honest stance to these things and that you're you're leading that effort and that you're doing this consistently because it's not for, let's say, business goals. There are still a lot of people in the industry who'd rather sugarcoat things and just hide the trash under the uh, carpet to make sure that the impeccable image of the company prevails. But again, people who've been in this industry for a while know that it's about being flexible, that it's about finding nuance, and that thinking in absolute terms helps no one, honestly. Absolutely. It's no secret. I work, I work for a vendor in the space. And there's been just as much sort of bad practice and bad messaging and bad behavior from vendors. It's so easy, or it would be very easy to just create a company, sell some training and live a good life. We, we, could, we could live a real good life just selling training to people and, and telling people it works. That's not what we're trying to do here. The reason we're so forthright, punchy with our message and that we're happy to stand up and and shout it from the rooftops is because we believe in this. We're not here to make a quick buck and, and no one in this industry should. We're, we're here to help people. We're here to keep people safe. We're here to fundamentally change how we approach security. It's, it's not a them and us and, and it shouldn't be. It's, it's just an us. We're, we are here as one. That's how we're gonna change. That's the fundamental shift that, that we're driving towards. And we have to, because we're only going to rely on technology more. So true. 
Thank you for articulating that so beautifully. And it's people like you who drive this industry forward, who show that you don't have to go into hustle mode to build a business that's valuable, that you can both build a business and a good living and help people. And that those two things don't have to, you don't have to compromise on one to have the other. And they think that that's so important because people see the distance between what we say and what we do. And when that distance is big enough, there's no, it's impossible to build trust there. But before I go out on that tangent, <laughs> I wanted to actually go back to you and ask you if there are any particular moments or experiences where you've been on the receiving end of empathy from another person in the industry or beyond it that have kind of felt like, a, let's say, an inflection point or a pivotal moment for your just your journey in this, not just professionally, because I know that it has to do a lot with the kind of person that you are. Yeah, I guess it would be joining CyberSafe, the company, and meeting Oz, our CEO. He took a chance on someone with very little experience, a somewhat questionable attitude, but a lot of passion, I think that's fair to say. And he, he showed me that real sort of patience and empathy and understanding and support and has been fundamental into getting me to where I am today. And I'm very thankful for that. I'm very grateful. That's wonderful to hear. I hope that we have many more people like him who do the same thing for others. I can see that there's, an, let's say, an undercurrent of people that are constantly doing this, that are constantly investing in others, either through their companies or through hiring people, mentoring them, or just lifting them up in the community and, and giving them the self-trust that they need to use what they already know and, and move ahead, just like you're trying to do with people that you serve with, with your customers and, and the people in their companies. Thank you for all of the stories and examples that you've shared, whether they were you know personal or related to your mission in the industry. I would love to keep this conversation going for a long, long time, but I'm going to leave it to listeners to discover your work and perhaps get in touch with you if, if they're interested in, you know, taking the conversation further. But I do hope that we get to have another chance to perhaps touch base in the future and see how things have changed and uh, hopefully report on big improvements <laughs> that you're contributing to. Yeah, I would love that. And um, just to say thank you very much for the opportunity. I've, I've seen this podcast uh, around the space. It, it's amazing what you're doing. I appreciate it. I'm very thankful for that. Thanks so much, Joe. Thanks for joining us. For show notes and links from this episode, head to cyberempathy.org, where you can also find resources to guide you to a healthier, more comfortable relationship with technology. And if you have a question for us, or if there's a topic you'd like us to discuss, we'd love to hear from you too.